Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are two of the sharpest defense political minds in Washington, D.C., Michael Baer, the chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association and the president of the Dunbarton Strategies Advisory Firm, and Arnold Panaro, a former NDIA chairman who is also a retired United States uh, Marine Corps Reserve Major General and former staff director of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He is also the principal of the Panaro Group Advisory. Michael is also a retired United States Army Reserve Colonel, and both of these gentlemen have been involved in confirmation processes uh, for very, very many years. years. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. A pleasure having you guys back on. Great to be here, Vago. Great to be here as well. Uh, thanks very much in particular because you guys are on the move in different parts of the country uh, with very busy schedules, and I'm glad uh, you guys could uh, join us. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra-intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval warfare coverage. Arnold, I want to start uh, with you and Michael. want to get your views in a moment also. We go through uh, this debt absurdity every few years. Each dollar spent has been approved by the United States Congress. It has the force of law, and Americans are living longer. They want more from government, whether it's better health care, roads, uh, you know, social security, defense, as well as lower uh, taxes. Uh, America is a world leader because uh, of its economy that underwrites itself as a military power, and quarter that power is the strength of the dollar as the world's reserve uh, currency. And anything that undermines that actually helps Russia and China who are trying to supplant the dollar or find ways uh, around it. The Economist had a great article last week talking about the absurdity of this worldwide. We're just not really raising enough money from our citizens to pay for all the things that they expect. And Harvard's Lawrence Tribe uh, wrote a thoughtful article that said, look, it's better to disregard the 1917 legislation that imposes a debt ceiling than default, um, right? That it's better to violate one law than violate all the spending laws uh, that got us here. What What's the thoughtful solution to this over the long term, irrespective of what happens between the president and the speaker? Arnold, start us off. Well, the thoughtful answer over the long term is that we've got to get control of our deficits. We can't be spending uh, in the in the red every year. And to do that, you've got to tackle all of spending. Everybody has to sacrifice. And that means you've got to take on the mandatory entitlement program, Social Security, Medicare, uh, uh, retirement payments, and basically interest on the debt, that is 75% of all spending, and nobody's focused on that, and nobody wants to tackle it, and you have to deal with revenues. we got to understand that the debt ceiling basically restricts government borrowing. It places a cap set by law on how much the federal government can borrow, and we spend more than we take in, and it applies to debt held by the public, but it also applies to the trust funds that pay Social Security, Medicare, military, and civil service. This statutory limit's been raised about 20 times since 2002, but without the ability to borrow, payments for all government activities will be delayed and our government could default on its obligations, putting into question the full faith and credit of the United States. But the long-term answer, uh, because the deficits are a national security problem is, uh, we've got to deal with it over a 10-year period and everybody's got to sacrifice, including discretionary spending, which is domestic and defense. 
Um, Michael, uh, what's your uh, sense uh, on this uh, as well, right? Because I think, Arnold, what you basically said is you've both got to, uh, you know, kind of throttle back on the spending while also increasing revenue, which is something that no politician uh, uh, wants to do, even if circumstances bringing us uh, to that point. Michael, what are some ways we need to think this through? So, Vago, I first of all, I agree with everything that Arnold said in terms of the ramifications of it, but I'd add another one, and that is, is that you know, this, the, uh, the massive debt that we've accumulated. And just since 2008, we have doubled the debt to equity rate, uh, debt to uh, revenue ratio in the United States. I mean, it, th- this growth is, is without precedent in this country. Our debt to GDP ratio now is greater than it was at the end of World War II. The consequence of that and the interest charges that flow from it dramatically reduce our productivity. And, and, and compress the rate of the growth of our economy generally. So there's both a long-term and a near-term consequence for this that's important. And I think as Arnold said, this all comes down to the Congress and you said the same thing. The Congress is what's enabled all of this. And we have a generation of leadership and members in the Congress for whom economics is really an alien thing. And we don't have economists, we don't have people who've been trained in business who are in those key slots. So revitalizing something like the old Joint Economic Committee to return it to its roots of being an internal education engine for the, for the Congress, helping members understand the near and long-term consequences of their decisions is one step along solving this problem. How do we uh, materially do that. Um, I mean, because right now you have uh, some members who are not interested, right? I mean, we used to be in rhetorical periods, whereas there are folks now who say, well, you know, default uh, would not be that bad. Or I got sent uh, to Washington in order to uh, vote against uh, debt increases, uh, right? So you have sort of a, a, a political brittleness that's accompanying this debate, where once upon a time, Arnold, early in your career, it was somewhat a pro forma thing that folks uh, used to do, a process that everybody used to go through. We tried a commission to solve this, right, and ended up with the Budget Control Act. Ultimately, what's the way out of this in the near term and then what, what, you know, what is the process? Joint Economic Committee is one way of doing it, Michael. Arnold, what are some of the material ways that we can actually get, get through this period? Because th- th- there is palpable panic in Washington that there is going to be a bad outcome here, irrespective of what the president and the speaker are, are, are discussing at this point. Well, Vago, there, there is no fix in the short term, because as I indicated, the only way you get control, as Michael has eloquently pointed out, the $31 trillion in deficit spending with interest on the debt being now almost large as the defense budget, they've got to basically lift the debt ceiling. We cannot afford to go into default. We cannot afford to wreck the full faith and credit of the United States. The world economy is based on credibility in the dollar. And so they're going to have to bite the bullet, just like they did four times in the Trump administration, just like they've done 20 times uh, in the last couple of decades and lift the debt ceiling. And at the same time, put in place a process for basically dealing with these longer term issues where you've got to tackle. And it's not going to happen in the short term. Neither President Biden nor the leading candidates for president on the Republican side are willing to tackle the entitlements. That's where all the growth and spending is. If you look at the annual amount of money we spend in the trillions of dollars, again, 
you know, let's say it's $6 trillion. Four of the, the $6 trillion is entitlements that don't go through the congressional process and interest on the debt. So the only short-term solution is doing what the Congress has done to pay for the bills they've made on a bipartisan basis, an overwhelming bipartisan basis. They've just got to bite the bullet and lift the debt ceiling and then put in place a longer-term process that I've described, the old Simpson Bowl Commission, to look over a 10-year period of capturing and cutting entitlements, discretionary spending, interest on the debt. That's the only thing that's going to work. Um, what, yeah, and uh, I agree, Michael, and Bago, I, Bago, I really agree with Arnold here. I mean, as I normally do. Um, and just to, just to make a point about his comment about interest in national security and how those two are approximately the same, in the last seven months, the increase in interest cost has added another $108 billion to the interest bill. It is now larger than national security. But, the, but back to solution, this is a generational question. This is not a problem for Arnold and me. We're gonna be gone before the chickens come home to roost on this massive debt. It is our children and grandchildren, much like the economy. This isn't gonna be solved until the people the young people who are going to pay for this malfeasance, they're the ones that have to rise up and say enough already, because they're the ones that are going to be stuck holding the ball. We, uh, time and again, the three of us, uh, and you guys have been at this longer uh, than I have, without dating you, as as you're as 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 you're you're both very youthful. Um, at at the end of the day, we've spent more than a century amongst ourselves uh, doing this. Uh, we've, we've been having this conversation. I've been doing this for more than 30 years, Michael. Uh, you and I and Arnold, you and I have been having this conversation about reform. But, but reforms have yet to turn over or to return to the treasury in any manner more money, right? I mean, are we at some point reaching the end of how we can reform our way through this? because it doesn't seem like we're raising nearly enough money for the expectations we have. Well, well Vago, I, I don't think we've reached the limit on reform. I think what we've reached the limit on is profiles and political courage. John Kennedy would not be able to write his book today because there are very few profiles and courage. This is going to take politicians to put the long-term interest ahead of their near-term parochial interest. And as they did in the, in the greatest generation is when Michael and I had the privilege of working for the greatest generation in the Congress, they always put the national interest ahead of parochial interest and political interest. And, and the reforms are there. I mean, there are so many things we can do uh, to rein in government spending, to basically get more bang for the buck in the military, to basically reform health care, uh, to tackle a lot of the other issues that are causing all this spending. Uh, but it takes a profile in courage. I mean, the Simpson-Bowl Commission back in 2010 came up with a bipartisan long-term solution that had been adopted by the Congress and President Obama at that time, we wouldn't be in this mess today. And as Michael said, uh, the pressure's gotta come from those that are coming behind us to force the politicians uh, to show some political courage. And, and that's what's got, but the reforms are there. It, it just takes political courage to enact them. Absolutely, Arnold's hit it, hit it square on. It, when the next generation says enough already, we're not paying these bills, you guys go find a solution. It'll happen. The solutions are there. It's just the lack of courage and will. Do you guys uh, get 
are, are you confident that we will avoid a, debt, a first ever debt default? Because the last time we toyed with it, the United States debt was downgraded and we still haven't lived that downgrade off. France was just downgraded recently. Uh, really quickly, before we go to defense uh, outlook, do you guys think that we'll go over the edge or not? Well, well, Vago, I don't think anybody that can predict what's going to happen. We're in uncharted waters. We're in a situation where both sides are dug in, where you have uh, people uh, in the Congress in both parties. Don't get me wrong. I'm not pointing to one party or the other that that love chaos, that want to see. I call them the meltdown caucus because they'd rather see uh, chaos and, and nothing happen than solve things like the problem solving caucus. So. I think we're in uncharted waters. I think there is a, a high likelihood that we're going to end up in a very, very bad situation. Now, once we go over the cliff, uh, like Thelma and Louise, I'm not sure the car will totally crash before somebody uh, saves it. But we, we are there, there is a very likely possibility of a very, very chaotic situation uh, that's going to happen in the very near future. Yeah, and I agree with Arnold. I mean, it uncharted in addition by, by by virtue of the fact that the leadership is so narrowly split between both bodies and both parties. And so the minority, the tiny fringe minorities on the right and the left have the ability to throw a wrench in any deal. So this is, we've never been quite in this fix before. Uh, it is, um, it is going to be fascinating uh, to watch, and I'm sure many people are going to get ulcers. Right now, at least capital markets see only about a 1% uh, threat of default, and let's certainly hope it uh, stays that way before uh, spiraling out of control. What do, what do you guys see as the outlook uh, for defense spending, right? Putting aside that it's inseparable from the power of the dollar, right? So if we default, it doesn't really matter how much money we spend uh, on defense. But we've heard from uh, Chairman Whitman, as well as a lot of other members. Uh, we've heard it from Jack Reed, uh, as well as um, his ranking member, about where we think spending is going to go. What is your guys' estimate about how much more upside there is uh, to defense spending? We've got an $852 billion, if I'm correct, uh, request. Congress looks like another $30 billion. How are you guys gaming this, especially as you look at the out years? Uh, Arnold, uh, start us off, and then Michael. Well, well, Vago, there's a fourth grade math problem that we've got to deal with. I, I don't share the, that the upside is going to be that large. The House of Representatives has passed a freeze at FY22 spending levels for defense. That is $100 billion lower than the FY24 budget request. It is $80 billion lower than the FY23 actuals that DOD is spending now. That is the level that the House appropriators, led by the Republicans, will have to mark their bills up to. So they have got to find $216 billion to cut in defense and domestic discretionary spending to get to the FY22 levels. If they want to increase defense, say by $10 billion, not $30 billion, they've got to find $226 billion because we're in a cut-as-you-go scenario under the freeze meaning anything you want to increase, uh, once you cut down to the freeze, you've got to cut something else. So I am very pessimistic about uh, the situation we're in, just from an arithmetical standpoint, notwithstanding the bipartisan leadership of the defense committees because of the threat, because of China, because of North Korea, Iran, uh, Russia, thinks we need to increase the budget. And, and I think uh, Michael and I would agree with that and get more bang for the buck when we do but the math doesn't work. I mean, we're in a very, very bad situation 
with the freeze having passed the House of Representatives. The other challenge we've got is internally the growth rate of O&M, of personnel costs, family benefits, health care. All of those things inside is, are aggravating the very problem that Arnold points out here. I mean, our, the cost of doing the things that we do and the choices we've made within the Pentagon are eating us up. And you put those two, two forces together and there's immense pressure on the department at a time in which we need more out of it. It has to be faster. We need more of what we've got. And that uh, that's, makes this a particularly grim situation. We, we have a recruiting uh, challenge. Uh, Arnold, you're uh, chairman of the Reserve uh, Policy Board, uh, and I know that you guys have been in intensive meetings, and I'm not going to uh, ask uh, what you guys are, are working on. But what are some of the strategic reforms that can be made uh, on how we attract manpower or, or people power, uh, how we retain it? Our answer always is bigger bonuses, you know, more money. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, more benefits. Uh, and even then, it doesn't really seem to be working. Everybody is below goal uh, on uh, recruiting. What are some differences? I know that both of you have spent a lot of time thinking about how we use people, differently use people. Are there particularly innovative approaches we can have here where the compensation maybe is in future deferred taxes as opposed to, right? I mean, are there innovative uh, things as opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to give you 10 grand a year extra or X amount of pay raises or such and such amount of benefits, which do accrue over time and are very, very expensive across the force. Well, well, Vago, I'm speaking strictly for myself here, obviously not representing any other organizations. Uh, I would say as someone that is with Michael that joined the military during the peak of the draft and then uh, finished our career as part of the volunteer force and on my years on Capitol Hill, we had to save the volunteer force on a number of occasions. Uh, you can't fix it with money. We, it's already uh, prohibitively expensive, and those costs are unsustainable, particularly the deferred compensation costs. There's a, we have 2.4 million retirees and 1.3 million people serving on active duty. There's a trillion-dollar liability, unfunded liability in the military retirement accounts. I think it's talent management. Uh, Michael, when he chaired the business board, had some extremely innovative uh, sessions on how do we basically motivate and recruit and retain people in, in this new world. And we've got to get out of the archaic World War II upper out promotion system, the gates that not the gates that recommended get rid of the draft and go into volunteer force for Nixon. Said we've got to get rid of the upper out promotion system. We've got to go from pay being based on time and grade to pay being based on skills and performance. And we've got to get rid of the cliff retirement system if the volunteer force is going to survive. And none of those things have happened. And so uh, figuring out how to basically have more flexible systems, figuring out how to take care of families, spousal employment, childcare, all those kind of things. But you don't fix it by throwing money at the problem. We've tried that in the past. It didn't work then. It's not going to work now. And frankly, it's not affordable. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Arnold. The, the, the buying our way out of this problem has actually attempted to buy our way out of the problem has actually aggravated the problem. We have compressed ourselves from what was truly a more, much more representative all volunteer army and military, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps into what has become an almost all professional military. The families of children, uh, the children of military families 
are the ones who are the majority of the people who are in service right now. We're not geographically diverse any longer. All of those things are directly result, I think, of the point that Arnold made. We've tried to, for every time we've had a recruiting problem, we've thrown money at it. And we've the, the nation has lost the sense of military service as a higher calling, as a duty, as a privilege, and it's become just another job. And that's a very bad place to be right now. And in a time in which the military is having this terrible trouble making quota, making numbers, there's been an absence of dialogue from the senior leadership with the American people, with mothers and fathers about, and children, as to why military service is important for the nation and for them. All of that's lost. Those things have to come back. The fundamentals have to come back because we are not going to solve this problem with money. But, but it doesn't appear that that argument is having the kind of appeal that it may have had a generation ago. Um, we haven't, in Mbago, we haven't made the argument. We haven't heard from our senior leadership on this at all. It is not a matter of, uh, that, that, that occupies their time. I I would I, I would respectfully say I think they do make the case, but they might be making the case to the receptive audience and not the broader audience. Michael, why don't you uh, start us on this one? Um, we're about to have a new chairman. Uh, it looks like it's going to be General C.Q. Brown, uh, who will be succeeding uh, Mark Milley. We're going to have a new Marine Commandant, a new Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, uh, as well as a new Chief of uh, Naval Operations. And Randy James has already been named to succeed Jim McConville, who's done just a tremendous uh, tour as a, as a man who tried for, for a dozen years to reform the Army and I think uh, does have some things to show for it. Ultimately, what do you think the priorities of this new leadership team have to be? Well, Bago, I, you know, thinking about this a little bit, um, I think first and foremost is they have to write for the American people the third and fourth reel of the movie U.S. v. China and, and, and get it clear in the minds of the, their subordinate leaders and the political leadership that they serve of what the outcomes are and what's at stake. Number two is, I think they, back to your point about recruiting, we've got to reframe a discussion with America on military service, its nobility and its greatness. Number three is the chairman and its senior leaders have to bring the Congress back together on national security. They're too divided right now on, on issues that are inconsequential in terms of the global struggle that's underway between the United States and China. They've fourth, they've got to push back on stupid ideas and demands no matter where they come from. And number five, they've got to save the profession of its, from itself. And that is get the retired flags out of politics. That's my five things that I'd recommend they do. Arnold? Well, Vago, Michael and I were on a panel earlier this year and I thought Michael had a very brilliant insight that he gave uh, to the folks that attended, and that was when you look at um, what we've done over the last 20 years, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, uh, many other areas, counterinsurgency, all those capabilities, frankly, are not relevant for the threats we face in the Indo-Pacific, particularly China, 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 but also trying to deal with uh, Iran that's on the verge of a nuclear weapon, uh, North Korea, Russia's on the attack. And frankly, the, the shift to China 
has not occurred. So I think if it is C.Q. Brown, as the media has reported, he comes out of that Pacific theater. He's got a lot of expertise there. He's going to have to put, push the joint force and the joint operations to really make the fundamental adjustments we haven't made. We still have, we talked about the Pacific to the Pacific, but we still have the same force structure in the Pacific we had in, in the year, uh, you know, 2010. We haven't made those adjustments. And Michael uh, has hit a lot of the other uh, key points. And, and I think that um, the Congress, is one of the only, one of the few bright spots is there is bipartisan recognition in the Congress that China is the preeminent threat that we've got to really make the adjustments to for our national security strategy. But our, our new incoming defense leaders are going to have to help make the recommendations. And we've got to get more bang for the buck. I mean, you all know my second book was The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. And what it was about was as the defense budget has gone up, the wartime capability and the size of our fighting military has gone down. We can't do that and, and basically deal with the China threat. Amen. Uh, ab absolutely. Uh, amen. And I uh, commend uh, Arnold's uh, work uh, to the audience uh, because it's very compelling. And actually, you're a pretty good writer, Arnold. <laughs> you're a very good ri uh, writer. Well, thank um, you. Uh, let me take you uh, to the question of uh, the logjam on senior leaders. The administration has slowed uh, a, slowed a little bit in part because of Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold uh, kind of on promotions and on confirmations uh, and uh, the like. Secretary Austin, Defense Secretary Austin has said this is unprecedented. Arnold, is it unprecedented? And what's it going to take to clear the logjam? And what are the implications if we don't? Because all of these senior leaders, I mean, I've already noticed this uh, in terms of getting interviews and talking to people and what my next assignment is and, well, I can't talk and I'm supposed to move. Hey, my retirement date is. And I mean, some people are getting right on top of their retirement and transition dates, which is uh, not really fair to senior leaders who we expect to hit the ground running. Where are well, we? Well, Vago, well, Vago, it's interestingly enough, my third book, and I'm done with everything but about one chapter, is about the Senate confirmation process for national security nominees, a subject Michael and I have worked on together for decades. And I would say people don't need to be confirmed to retire. So if anybody's holding up their retirement, uh, they certainly, uh, that's not a cause of the U.S. Senate. Now, somebody may say, well, I can't retire till my replacement comes. Well, they, they still can because we go to acting and deputies taking over all the time. But yes, in terms of holding up 180 flag and general officer nominations, that is unprecedented. In the Senate, in the Senate Armed Services Committee, traditionally, we've we've not allowed people to hold up the military because we don't want to politicize the military nominations like they've done judges. But on the civilian side, we've gone to the slow roll on everybody. It started uh, under previous leadership, and now uh, things get slowed down. Every nomination almost has to go through a lengthy Senate procedure called cloture. But when it comes to the military, uh, my hope is, and I've talked to some of the leaders up there, that we don't start treating the military like judges and have to use the Senate cloture process because then you're going to basically have to use it for every single military nomination. The hold is based on a policy difference that has nothing to do with the individual. So, yes, it is unprecedented. Um, and I don't think the, that we ought to cross the Rubicon and start treating the military senior nominees like judges. Um, yeah, Michael, let, let me go, just add something to that, because I'm going to go back and, and double tap on Arnold's point about the civilian nominees. The, we, we have seen time and time again critical jobs in acquisition, in policy, 
and in management where nominees were reported out of the committee with Arnold's great help of coaching and, and mentoring them through the confirmation process and have them sit for as long as a year waiting to go into federal service. Now, these, for them, these critical senior leadership jobs, there aren't deputies, there aren't number twos ready to fill in during that time frame of the vacancy. So the civilian vacancies, which people have taken almost for granted, have had an enormously detrimental effects on the process. So it's a two-sided effort. We've really got to get the Congress out of these military nominations for petty political reasons, but we've also got to restore, as Arnold says so brilliantly, restore the integrity of the, of the civilian nominees and get these people into jobs promptly and get them doing the nation's business. Um, yeah, really amen to Michael on that. Um, really quickly for, uh, with both of you, because we're uh, almost uh, out of time. You guys joined us in the countdown for this uh, administration as the Biden administration was coming in on how they're doing, how they have to prepare. We're now more than two years into the administration, and we still have some key jobs that are not filled. Some of those are the fault of the administration. On the other hand, some of it is the fault of members that have put holds, uh, mystery holds on people and, and sort of kept them there really for, for no point. How is this team uh, doing and what has to happen to sort of clear away, right? I mean, get butts in seats because some of this stuff is just, as, as you guys mentioned, taken forever and a day and it has implications in the operation of the department. Vago, if you look at the 65 Senate confirmed political appointees that the Department of Defense has, and I've done these statistics as recently as, you know, a few weeks ago, Biden administration is running ahead of both the Obama administration and the Trump administration in terms of the number of people they've nominated and, and in the time frame for that. Now, don't get me wrong, all three administrations have been slower to nominate people than past administrations, where the Biden administration, and it's really the fault of the U.S. Senate, they've had more of a slow roll on their civilians than was the case in Obama or in Trump. And so the process is all, you know, we've gone from the Kennedy administration when he would get all his top people uh, in in the space of three months. We're now a year before you get all your top people. Um, and that's only a handful of people. What's happened is the, the slowdown in the Senate is the worst I have ever seen it in all the years and decades Michael and I have been doing this. And like he said, we have people that wait a year. People that call me and say, Arnold, I've been offered this undersecretary job you think I ought to take it. I say, and Michael, I know would agree with this, serving your government in one of these positions, there's no higher calling, no better calling. As long as you're willing to put up with two years of delay and uncertainty and maybe you won't ever get through, you ought to take it. So we have got to fix this. Yeah, Michael. No, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard the same thing time and time again that Arnold has mentioned. People have said to me, I've been asked to do this and I'm not going to do it because I don't want the risk to my reputation. I can't afford to spend a year and a half of my life waiting on somebody to confirm me. Um, this, this situation is relatively new, as Arnold pointed out. I mean, in the Reagan administration, by the end of January, they had all their service secretaries in and some of their assistant secretaries and they were testifying on Capitol Hill. So if we could do that then in the Cold War, it could be done today, but we've allowed this new norm to settle in because no one has sat down and thought through the consequences. 
they're both near and long-term consequences, as Arnold has eloquently pointed out, and they're, they're really beginning to harm us. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure having you on the program. Thought-provoking, as always. Thanks so very much for making time for us today, uh, given how uh, you guys have been literally swamped back-to-back. Thanks very much, and already looking forward to having you guys back on again. Our privilege. It is a great privilege, Vago, and thank you for all you do to keep these issues in front of everybody. Thanks very much again, guys. Really appreciate it.